0: Hello, and welcome to the Bobby Yaga Project. The Bobby Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your hosts, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia,
1: and I'm doing a PhD in medieval
0: history. This week we're talking about foraging for food in the springtime. And Sonia's gonna take it away.
1: We we have finally done it. We've got a whole, a whole year's worth of foraging episodes. You will be able to find edible plants and the assorted other foods at any time of the year. But this is also a disclaimer. This is the part of the episode where I say don't try this at home. Like... Obviously, you know, a lot of the time, poisonous plants look pretty similar to the not poisonous yeah. plants. So be careful. You know, don't do this unless you... Find
0: somebody familiar with your area who can show you in person is generally the best way to do that.
1: Exactly. If you're, you know, post-COVID, when, once we've all been vaccinated,
0: yeah, you know, you there's all kinds of anyway? like, outdoor
1: organizations and stuff who will be very happy to help. Back you.
0: Back in that house. It is quarantine.
1: <laughs> that's that's after right. What are you doing PM. outside? Get inside. Well, I guess I guess if you're in the woods, you're you're allowed. But after eight PM, get inside. It's a curfew order. <laughs> anyway, um but yeah, so I mean one of the few remaining allowable <laughs> activities Tol- is Going into the woods. (laughs) Let's do it. What do we find in the woods? So let's talk about things we find in the woods. (laughs) Alright, so I guess we'll start out with, you know, obviously in the springtime, there's a lot of new little shoots coming up. People are plowing the fields and preparing them for planting, but, you know, especially in the early spring, there's obviously not much that is growing in terms of cultivated crops just yet. So, you know, you've probably been eating quite a monotonous diet over the winter. You know, you're primarily eating dried legumes, uh, grains, some, some salted preserved meat. And, you know, as we talked about in our previous foraging episode you know, you could maybe bulk that out a bit and get a little variety with some of the some of the plants and berries and stuff that were available in the wintertime. However, springtime, you suddenly have fresh, fresh foliage. You can eat actual <laughs> fresh foods like salads. You can eat nice, like, cooked greens, which, yeah, today, we're like, oh man, are you kidding me? I have to eat my vegetables, but uh, again, you would also be super excited about vegetables if most of what you had eaten for the past months was like lentils cooked with buckwheat and maybe a little garlic if you were feeling spicy that day. <laughs> So, I mean, the other thing is, as we've talked about before, a lot of these plants were used medicinally as well. So you would want to collect them in their season and then either dry them or, you know, preserve them by cooking them down and, you know, storing them in little jars and stuff in order to have like salves and dried plants available throughout the rest of the year. So without further ado, let's get into springtime foraged plants so, the first one I'm going to start out with is the sweet violet um They are small they are very they grow very low to the ground, and they sort of pop up everywhere in springtime um Today, they are mostly thought of as weeds because they quote unquote ruin our pristine, <laughs> beautiful lawns. so we all know lawns should be only grass, and if there's anything else growing in them, it is an abomination.
0: Oh, but this is not a road you want to go down with me. I have very strong feelings about lawns.
1: Oh, I also have very strong feelings about lawns. Get rid of your lawns; they're ruining yeah,
0: they pollinator lives.
1: Yeah, Abolish let lawns. things grow in your lawn.
0: Yeah, or plant food. Yeah, food. I mean,
1: even even if you are like. Unfortunately, a lot of homeowners associations and stuff don't allow you to plant gardens. Yeah. But they can't stop you from planting flowers, creeping thyme, moss, bushes. Anyway.
0: I mean, I think they can, but also abolish the homeowners association. Abolish private property.
1: (laughs) we, We got real off topic real fast, but that's... That seems par for the course around here. (laughs) Anyway, that's not how people always viewed sweet violets. In the classical world, they were a symbol of Aphrodite because they are very sweet-smelling, fragrant. Mm -hmm. They were considered quite beautiful, so, you know, obviously associated with the goddess of love and beauty. And this is another thing that has nothing to do with actually foraging them, but there's a pretty uh, wild Greek myth about this. (laughs) Because in Greek myth, Zeus falls in love with, uh, lusts after Io, who is a nymph, and he just becomes completely obsessed with her. But Hera, his wife, finds out about this, and as we know in Greek myth, Hera is quite quite displeased with <laughs> Zeus's womanizing, and tends to go after the people that he uh, romances. So in order to yeah spare io from hera's wrath wrath zeus has the brilliant idea of turning her into a cow so he turns io into a cow <laughs> so that hera can't find her But she starts crying, not because she's now a cow, but because she has to eat grass. And the grass is tough and it's foul-tasting. So Zeus turns the tears that have fallen into sweet violets so that she can eat those instead. (laughs) Because sweet violets are actually sweet-tasting. If you eat them, they they are sweet.
0: Yeah, I just, But (laughs) I don't know, I think I'd be okay being a cow. I don't have I mean, to pay bills. That's... I just wander around and eat grass. As long as I'm not like a factory that's farm fair. cow, I'd be chill.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just I feel like nymph to cow is a is a real step down because nymphs also oh, don't have yeah. to pay bills, right? Oh, like they yeah. just kind of I lounge around, maybe play some music, maybe seduce some some passers by. You know, it's a pretty chill life for them. However, as we get into the Middle Ages, people still love violets. They become associated with the Virgin Mary um, because they are both, you know, beautiful and sweet and these harbingers of springtime. But they are also, you know, low growing. So they're seen as, you know, humble and modest um, (laughs) as opposed to like roses, which are very proud flowers and they grow very tall and fancy. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: So in the Middle Ages... Speaking of different flowers, Albertus Magnus recommends the violet as uh, part of your pleasure garden. So if you are a rich, fancy person and you can afford to, you know, have an area of land that is just for nice flowers so that you can sit and look at them and contemplate their beauty, he says that you should plant violets, roses, and lilies. Uh, another medieval... You know, big name in the medieval scene, Hildegard von Bingen, (laughs) recommends using violets to help improve blurry vision. Because you boil the violets in oil, then you wait for the oil to cool, and you put the oil on your eyelids at night, which should help with the uh, fogginess of vision. I don't know how much this would actually help, Hmm. but you know it was it was worth a try i'm guessing it couldn't it couldn't hurt is the thing i will I guess, say I as uh, someone who studies medieval medicine it's a lot less wild than people imagine it to be this is what most of the recipes are like <laughs> it's like i don't know boil it all down into a salve and put it on the part that hurts and hope for the best <laughs> hildegard also recommends cooking wi- cooking violets in wine and then drinking that to drive out melancholy, which I don't know about you, but I think a nice you know, infused wine could drive out my melancholy sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, And yeah, yeah. Got get behind that one too.
1: Right? I mean, Hildegard knew what she was doing. <laughs> and they were also, of course, commonly used in cooking. Um, because again, the flowers and leaves are edible, and they are you know relatively sweet tasting. So they're good in salads, and there's actually recipes that call for them being cooked down into um, conserves and syrups. Mm-hmm. So then you would use that in your dessert, right? So you'd maybe cook down mm-hmm. some grains and then pour the syrup on it, and you have like a kind of a sweet pudding situation. And that's that on sweet sweet violets.
0: Cool.
1: Have to go find some. No real trifecta. They're good, good for your pleasure gardens where it's just there to look pretty. It's good for medicinal purposes. Good for eating, and it has some cool stories behind it. Perfect. Next plant. up is another uh, despised plant in lawns, which are dandelions.
0: Dandelions.
1: Everybody says that they're horrible, loathed weeds, and they ruin lawns, and we think of them as intrusive and ugly today, but that is a very, very recent view of these plants. So dandelions have probably been around for about 30 million-ish years, (laughs) and they're mostly native to Eurasia um, originally. The name, I thought this is kind of interesting, actually comes from French, apparently, where they are Dante de lion, the tooth of the lion, uh, because of the shape of their leaves, because oh. they look like teeth. Yeah. Like big, long, pointy teeth. Um, oh.
0: Yeah.
1: So, for most of Like, for a lot of recorded history, dandelions have been used by different communities as a source of food. Um, They were very well known in, you know, Egyptian cuisine, the Greeks, the Romans. Uh, They've been used in as far as traditional Chinese medicine for over a thousand years at least. So it was very much, you know, not seen as this, like gross weed so much as you know this is a nice nice food to have and the reason they are in the Americas now apparently I think there were there were some varieties of dandelions in the Americas prior to um the uh, prior to contact with um you know Eurasia but the varieties that we would think of now were actually brought to North America on the Mayflower because they were um, they were used for medicine. So people brought them over and actually planted them for medicinal benefits. Which, again, you know, makes it is just kind of interesting to me that we go from these plants are important, we need to bring them over with us for sure, to you know, get that off my lawn. Um, and they were used, again, a lot of times for salads or you can um, cook them just because, you know, if you if you pick the flowers and the leaves when they're young, they're quite, um, you know, they're quite tender and mild tasting. So they're nice for a salad. Whereas if you wait until they get kind of bigger, they can be kind of bitter and tough. So they would in that case, you would cook them down Um you know, and either have them in a soup or as like kind of a mm-hmm. like a side dish of greens. They've also been used medicinally for everything yeah. from colds, boils, ulcers, dental problems, jaundice, like basically anything you can think of at some point somebody yeah. thought, Eh, I don't know, make some dandelion tea and they, see if that they helps.
0: They have like a lot of vitamins in them though. So they probably do help just they by, do. Like, fortifying your body.
1: Oh, absolutely. Like, they definitely, they have vitamin, I have this written down, vitamin A, C, and K. Oh. So, I mean, you yeah, know, it, it wouldn't, again, its it wouldn't hurt yeah. you. Like, it's not going to cure things necessarily, but it certainly isn't going to hurt if you drink some high vitamin C tea yeah. for your cold. Uh, The last little fun fact is that the roots are also edible. Um, Because if you've ever pulled a dandelion, you know how long and, like, thick those roots can be. And apparently they can also be um, eaten just like any other root vegetable would be. So you can wash them up, boil them, roast them, boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Throw me in the trash, Margot and Lord of the Rings trash
0: and always will be fully support it. Again, I'm on my Tolkien reread garbage right now, so <laughs> love it. <gasps> What's next? Excellent. Our next food.
1: Next up is an even more hated <laughs> plant which is the stinging nettle.
0: Oh yeah, nettles.
1: They are the worst. Um <laughs> I hate them, personally, uh, because, story time, (laughs) our next-door neighbors growing up were German immigrants, and, you know, they were, like, quite, um, like, old people, Um, so when they were growing up, eating nettles was very common, and they actually grew nettles in their backyard, but the thing about nettles is they spread, like, weeds, so if your neighbors are growing nettles you're also growing nettles. Um, So it very much spread into our yard, and I have many upsetting (laughs) memories of going into the backyard and, like, you know, because we had a lot of, like, you know, we had hedges and, like, a big hedge and big, like, flower gardens and ferns and stuff. So if you're a kid playing out there, right, the nettle is, like, in between stuff. It's not like it's just growing randomly oh. in, like, the middle of your flat lawn. So I've I've had a lot of experience with, uh... <laughs> and, and also there was, like, you know, just spending time in the woods and stuff. Again, you just brush up against it. For, for people who are not familiar with it, nettle are tall, like, thin, leafy yeah. plants. And both the stems and the leaves are covered little in structures that are, like, yeah, like little... Sp- like spiny hairs that are hollow and these hairs act like needles when they come into contact with you. So they get into your skin and they also have like a type of chemical that is like on them and in them. So it causes horrible stinging and a
0: rash wherever you touch it. Yeah. And because it like injects itself essentially into your skin, it's, it's really hard to, to get rid of. So after after my ranting about how this
1: <laughs> stings and burns and causes a rash, you might be wondering, okay, why so why it? are people eating these? <laughs> I would like to say that apparently it is possible to eat them raw, and people just suffer, and I don't know why anyone would do that. But, uh, however, <laughs> uh, historically... The way, the method that people would use to consume these was either through soups or teas because the boiling water actually deactivates the stinging nettle from stinging because it, you know, denatures the little hair needle-like structures on it so it can't sting you anymore. And nettle soup would have mainly been eaten during the spring and the early summer when it was still kind of young and tender. But, again, you could potentially save this, you know, dried out for later use. Right. Um, Because the consumption of stinging nettle in medieval Europe was mainly used medicinally. Uh, Primarily, it was used as a diuretic or to treat arthritis. Uh, anemia, hay fever, or as a blood purifier. And it actually does seem like it might have helped with some of these, because it it does have a lot of iron and protein for a plant. So, you know, at least in the case of something like anemia, eating a bunch of nettle soup could actually help, you know, (laughs) help (laughs) with that. They're also known to have a lot of calcium, magnesium, iron, and a lot of different vitamins. So, again, it's maybe a bit of an odd choice at first. At first glance, I guess, <laughs> but it's definitely um, something that would have been mainly eaten as, you know, a medicinal thing. And it's, you know, l- later on, it did become something people would, you know, choose. Right. to eat as, you know as as culinary tastes changed, I guess. And <laughs> okay. you know I feel like it, it probably wouldn't be it wouldn't be too bad. You know, you throw some, some spices in there, maybe it's not it's not so mu- it's not so rough. Uh next up is the plantain herb, which is not related to the banana looking <laughs> plant um it's like a low growing broad flat-leaved plant mm-hmm. yeah. and it's again it's native to europe and to north and central asia um and over over time it has been naturalized into other areas they actually grow best in kind of disturbed or an impacted or compacted like soils, which essentially means they will grow anywhere um, in a lot of cases, you know, you see them in the cracks of sidewalks and like
0: right.
1: the cracks in asphalt, right? Like that's those like big broad leaf things that you see growing out of there. Interesting. Um, the seeds were and continue to actually be a common like um, not addition, but like contaminant like within uh, seed grain. So when you buy, you know, your seeds for your crops, um, because these things grow everywhere and they release their seeds everywhere, it's, it's difficult to, you know, get them out of your, your seed grain. Um, hence, you know, how it spreads so (laughs) rapidly because if you take your seed grain from one place to another, you're also bringing along the plantain herb. So, um... So once again, when the leaves are kind of young and tender, people would eat them raw in different salads. Because again, I know a lot of this is like, make a salad. But once again, you've spent the entire (laughs) winter eating like pottage, which is like legumes Mm. and grains and like maybe some preserved meat boiled down in a pot. So you're like, wow, fresh food. incredible. I will eat a salad every day if I can. <laughs> um, and, and again, yeah. as the season goes on and the leaves get kind of bigger and older and tougher, um, it would be boiled down into a stew or you know, cooked down in some right. way so that they could be eaten more easily. Uh, in herbal medicine, these were very commonly used to treat fevers, Um, so they would be either cooked down or made into, you know, um, different, you know, tisanes or um, Mm -hmm. added into tinctures and stuff, and there's actually research being done into their use as an effective treatment for, um, you know, fevers and illness and stuff because apparently there are some compounds in it in the plant that are of interest um, in terms of being useful as a fever reducer um, and also I think there were there were a few other kind of uh, benefits to it as well apparently they can also be made into a pultice that will soothe uh, if you have wounds and sores on your body which again I mean it couldn't hurt. I don't know uh, enough about <laughs> this, but again, they are looking into it. Um, there, there is research being done. You
0: have like anti-inflammatory. Yeah, properties. yeah, that it might
1: have exactly anti-inflammatory properties, and I know that traditionally, there, there are um, medieval records of plantain herb being used to treat like possibly what we would think of as malaria because. You know, it would they they didn't in in a lot of cases necessarily say, like, this is for malaria. But they would say, like, if somebody keeps having fevers and chills, you know, cook down the plantain leaf and mix it with wine and, you know, a few other things and then give it to okay. them. Um, so, again, it seems like this is something that can that, you know, might might be able to help with certain diseases. And uh, hopefully that ends up being being helpful. Um, again it was brought over from the um, sorry Um, once again this was something that was (laughs) brought to the Americas by European settlers who were bringing it over um, because of its medicinal properties and this is a fun fact Uh, so it was brought over by the Puritan colonizers and it was known among some uh, indigenous groups uh, would call it the white man's footprint uh, because the plantain herb, oh, it thrives yeah. in these like disturbed, damaged soils <laughs> around European settlements. And that is still one of the common <laughs> names for it today. The scientific name is Plantago Major. So it is still known as either plantain herb or... Yeah, I've, okay, I've heard about yep. that name for it. So I thought that was a, you know, fun fact. (laughs) And last but not least, we will talk about the humble ground ivy. So the ground ivy is, again, grows low to the ground. Obviously kind of has these wide, big leaves. It's like a creeping plant. Um, It wasn't necessarily eaten in the springtime, but it does seem like... So ground ivy wasn't necessarily <laughs> eaten um, you know in the way that these other plants that we've talked about have been consumed um, because instead it actually was used in the brewing of ales. So this dates back to oh. the Anglo-Saxon period, so like early medieval England and then you know it spreads into other areas of the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point they're not using hops. Right, they hops aren't being used in brewing um, until really the late fifteenth century, so like late fourteen hundreds, and that's what differentiates ale and beer. So, right. Um, so, in prior prior to that, ground ivy was actually used quite commonly in brewing ale because it adds flavoring to it in the same way that hops can add flavoring it helps with clarification and again like hops it also has um preservative qualities so it can make your ale last longer as compared to just brewing brewing it and leaving it alone as it is so it's actually does have a brewing related name and it's known as ale hoof <laughs> Because it's put That's into... Really cute. Yeah, because it's put into ale, but it's also, like, on the ground and, like, kind of shaped like yeah. a hoof. All right <laughs> <Aww. laughs> Right, there's a lot of little cute names. Uh, the other thing is that it has been used, again, as uh, for medicinal purposes. So, you know, we have Galen from the Greek recommending ground ivy to treat inflammation of the eyes. Um, There's also recommendations to use it against bronchitis. So it's, again, something that seems like it might be anti-inflammatory to some degree. Yeah. And once again, this was brought over to the Americas by European settlers because it was again, used as a medicinal herb and to preserve ale. So uh, now actually it is it is a problem species because it's actually an invasive weed in North America. It is um, because it outcompetes a lot of the natural yeah. stuff that's supposed to be here.
0: And I think that's about it. This is a bit of a shorter episode, but... Yeah, but that's okay. I think it was... Jam packed full of information.
1: Uh, you know, I I tried. We've got five five good foraging foraging plants: sweet violet, dandelions, nettles, plantain herb, and ground ivy. And I think I think we covered a lot too. We've got plants for brewing, plants for medicines, plants for eating, the plants that you turn the tears of a cow into so that she stops <laughs> crying. Like
0: truly, we are ready to meet all the needs. (laughs) Yeah, definitely the needs of cows.
1: Yes, (sighs) we must protect cows. Um, But I guess just sort of to round out our little, you know, our our mini-series on foraging, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I think there is something to be said about, like, you know, learning how to do stuff like this, and being able to identify mm-hmm. plants that are local to your area. It can be, yeah. you know, an interesting experience, and again, you can, you can definitely get some... be useful for the end times. Yes, well that that too. When, when the end times are truly upon us. When the plague of blood <laughs> <have> in the <laughs> river
0: starts...
1: <laughs> and the we'll locusts to descend we will food. be eating sweet violets Margot. we will be fine yes
0: we will it'll be great excellent but
1: also even for not end times purposes you know it, it can be nice <laughs> if you're camping
0: <laughs> that too I guess
1: <laughs> No, we're trying to stay we're trying to keep it positive
0: well we will be back
1: We'll be back next week. If you liked this, please leave it a review on iTunes. It really helps get the podcast in the algorithm. Get out there. Uh, If you didn't like this, you should still go leave a review because we we held your attention for about, I don't know, 40-ish minutes.
0: Half an hour. That's not nothing.
1: Please leave a review.
0: (laughs) Please. Please rate, review subscribe smash that like join us on patreon (laughs) thank
1: you for listening to the baba yaga project and as always thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible please follow us on twitter instagram and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings also please consider supporting us on patreon it really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways there's also patreon exclusive merch and content